to you. I just send your Holy Spirit and do that as we continue in our service here tonight. We pray that in your name. Amen. Um, high schoolers, you're dismissed. They're going to go up in the youth room. Again, middle schoolers are going to be helping with the December to remember so they can go where the kids are. The rest of you, say hello to somebody tonight, and then you can be seated. All right, Job chapter 16, if you'll turn there, we're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study in the book of Job. So we left off two weeks ago at uh, chapter 15, so we'll pick it up now. In chapter 16, I want to remind you of a couple things as you're turning in your Bibles. And if you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand because we're going to cover maybe five chapters tonight, all right? And uh, we'll see how far the Lord takes us. Sometimes I say five and we get done with three so, or two or maybe one. I don't know. So uh, we'll see where the Lord takes us. Just raise your hand if you need a Bible. We'll start at Job chapter 16, verse 1. We'll see how far the Lord takes us here tonight. We are going to have communion tonight. And uh, so uh, we want to have time for that as well. Um, to remind you that on Saturday morning, 7 o'clock, guys, we have our men's prayer and uh, come join us for that. It's a great time for us to get together and just pray. And then at 8 o'clock, we're going to have men's breakfast over at Golden Corral that we do on the first Saturday of the month. So come join us for that on Saturday if you can make it for that. And then Saturday evening, ladies, you have at 5 o'clock, you have a ladies' uh, Christmas, uh, and it's a potluck. I don't have a bulletin with me, right? And over at Amy Banowitz, and address, maps, uh, address to Amy's house in your bulletin, maps to her house at the information desk. And again, it's at 5 o'clock, and um, you're going to have a great time. Uh, Sue, my wife, uh, gave me a little note and says, Can you please announce that if any lady needs a ride to Amy Banowitz on Saturday, I have room for two ladies. Meet me at the church parking lot at 4.30, but be sure to talk to her tonight, okay? So, uh, Sue, raise your hand. So, most of you know who Sue is, but I just want to make sure, all right? So, ladies, are going to have a great time. Sunday, 8.30, 10.30, we're going uh, to finish chapter 14. Of course, uh, we looked at the first 14 verses last week in this, what is called the Upper Room Discourse that covers... Uh, chapters 13 through 17 is some of the most richest uh, portion of Scripture in all of the Bible. And we're going to finish chapter 14 and then move into chapter 15, which is a very important chapter that talks about abiding in Christ and producing fruit that the Lord wants to do uh, in our lives as we do uh, abide in Christ. So 8.30 and 10.30 are our service times. 
invite somebody out. We're going to have a wonderful time in God's Word and worship. And again, on Sunday, we'll take a communion as well. Um, I want to remind you that next month, uh, we on January 11th, after all the holiday stuff is done and, and holiday weekend and everything, on Sunday, January 11th, we're going to be going to three Sunday morning services. So 8, 9.30, and 11. And we'll be kind of giving some specifics where our needs are uh, as far as serving. So be praying about that, especially as you get towards the end of the year and you start um, thinking, Lord, what is it that I can do? Um, what can I do to serve you? Or uh, perhaps the Lord has been just touching your heart in those areas. Uh, but we'll, we'll kind of let you know, and we're planning and working. Please be praying for us uh, as we plan for the three services uh, starting on January 11th. In the meantime, for the next four Sundays, uh, we'll be at our uh, times at 8.30 and 10.30. Uh, we'll be in the book of Job for this week and then the next two Wednesdays. And then three weeks, can you believe it's Christmas Eve? So we'll have our Christmas Eve uh, services. We customarily hear do it a little bit different than in a lot of churches. We do it early. So we're going to have a noon time and a 3 o'clock Christmas Eve service, uh, family services. And um, so you can be with your family on Christmas Eve later on with dinner. And uh, so be looking forward to that. Again, we'll have a nursery provided, and we'll have flyers so you'll be able to invite somebody out to, to Christmas Eve service on Wednesday the 24th. And then on the 31st, We'll have Wednesday night service, New Year's Eve, and the kids are going to be doing some things for December to remember, and we're going to have a prophecy update. I do this every year, and uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of neat things, a lot of things that are pointing to the soon return of Jesus Christ, so you don't want to miss it, all right? And you want to come out, and we'll have it at 7 o'clock, and uh, we're going to look at God's Word. We're going to see the prophetic scenario that is described to us. Uh, that uh, is told to us what's going to be taking place right before the second coming of Jesus Christ. So there's going to be lots to talk about. Uh, again, New Year's Eve prophecy update. Christmas Eve is we are going to celebrate the first coming of Jesus. New Year's Eve, we're going to be looking for the second coming of Jesus Christ because he said he's going to come back. He promised that he would. And he said that you and I are to be the wise servant that is looking for the master's return because that come at a time when you do not expect. So we are to be wise. We're to be watching. We want to be able to discern the times in which we are living in, right? Because Jesus rebuked the religious leaders. He rebuked the religious leaders saying uh, that you can discern the, the weather, the, the sky, um, but you're not discerning uh, the coming of the Son of Man. And Jesus uh, would tell them that they should have known that the Son of Man was in their midst. And we know that Jesus gave us certain signs that are going to be taking place. And we know from the scriptures, all the way through the scriptures, a third of the Bible is prophecy. And I think it is unfortunate that a lot of churches don't talk about prophecy. They don't talk about the return of the Lord. And one of the things that I always want to keep before you is that Jesus Christ is coming back. And be wise and be watching, because what that does, just as John would say in his epistle that he who has this hope, what hope? Of seeing the Lord, uh, of being a believer, purifies himself. So when we believe that, Lord, you can come at any time when, when we're least expected, and I believe that the Lord can come for us, 
uh, at any time. We don't know when he's going to come back, but we do know the season that we're in. And we're going to talk about the signs that point to the soon return of Jesus, why we're in the last days. And it should excite us and it should stir our hearts uh, to just even more uh, be committed to him and to love him and to know him and to be looking for him and to live for him. So I hope it's a great encouragement uh, as we look at God's word in that area. So lots of neat things coming up, uh, but we want to get into our study here. Uh, There's some other things that are in your bulletin. Take a look at it. But Father, we do want to study this chapter of Job and see how far we get tonight. And I pray that you would touch our hearts. Um, We know that Job is a very sobering book and a very serious book. And he went through tremendous suffering. But Lord, also we know that this is written for us, that we may learn of not only your greatness, but your goodness. And Lord, that we would learn of your character. And Father, that you do care about us and you see us and you're not against us. We're not at war with you as your children. But Lord, that you desire for us to know that, that you truly are our hope and our future. So, Lord, I pray you bring comfort and strength to us tonight. And, Lord, that we would be encouraged. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, of course, Job has gone through tremendous difficulties and loss and grief. He's sitting in the ash heap. His three friends come to him. Job, who had lost his children, his servants, all his wealth. He has been afflicted physically with boils all over him. He's very much in pain. When his friends saw him, they didn't even recognize him. And what they did was those three individuals sit for seven days in the ash heap with him as he's covered with sackcloth, and and Job is grieving tremendously, and nothing is said. And I think that as we reflect on that, that the most effective ministry that these three friends, their name, of course, Eliphaz and Bildad and so far, that the greatest ministry that they had with Job, the most effective ministry, was when they said nothing, when they were just there. Now, of course, the reason is, is because we've seen this exchange between Job and, and his three friends. And his three friends, each one of them, have been pretty harsh to Job. They have said to Job that you must have sinned. God is a righteous God. And you must have sinned for this to come upon you, your children's sin. And the words have really cut deep to Job and hurt him. So there's been this exchange of words. You you have Eliphaz that would uh, give counsel to Job. And Job would respond. And then Bildad, and he's pretty brutal. And Job would respond. And then so far, and Job responds. And now we're into that second round of exchange between, you know, his three friends and Job. And we saw in chapter 15, a couple weeks ago, you might remember that we left off with Eliphaz, that he comes and once again he's digging in his heels and he's saying, Job, you're wicked. You must have really done something bad to have this happen to you. So Job, as we're going to see, is now in chapter 16 going to respond to that. But what we're going to to learn and, and what we're going to read about here is that these words that these guys say to Job 
really are very, very hurtful. Matter of fact, let's begin to see Job's response to, to Eliphaz's second address to Job, the second round of, of exchange that they have, as Job answered in chapter 16, verse 1, and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall words of wind have an end? Oh, what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's place, I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. But I would uh, strengthen you with my mouth, and the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. So here's not only what they're saying, these guys, but how they're saying it. And Job was saying, listen, if I was you know, um, in your sandals, or in other words, if you were going through such loss and affliction, I could be saying things that are hurtful to you and very painful. I could be shaking my head at you. And I just picture that these guys, here's Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, kind of pointing their finger and shaking their head, and Job, you must have really sinned. Just a harshness that is in their voice. And you kind of sense it as we continue on. But Job here, as he speaks to them, he's looking for sympathy. And he calls them miserable comforters. And my prayer for us, that as we minister to others, that we wouldn't be known as miserable comforters. When people are hurting, we want to strengthen them. We want to lift them up. We want to encourage them. And that means that we bring comfort to them. And we are to give those words of wisdom and comfort to people that are downcast. But these guys, not desiring to bring that comfort to Job or being harsh, they're speaking out of their own wisdom. They're making the wrong implication. And one of the things that we have been talking about going through the book of Job here is that we want to learn from this book. And it is a hard book to go through these chapters and, and see Job, how he's of heavy of heart and hurting of heart. And he's grieving to, to a degree to where a lot of his emotion is coming out. And he feels as though God is against him. He's going to express that in, in, uh, in a deep way here as we continue on. That God is against him and that he must be an enemy to God. And, and that God is, is got, you know, like an archer that's ready to shoot the arrows at him. And he understands the greatness of God, but he doesn't understand the goodness of God. And one of the things that we learn from Scripture is that when we go through trials and difficulties and loss, that I think that for most of us, we do know the, the greatness of God. But what we can forget is the goodness of God. That God is still good, and He is our hope. And we may not understand everything that we're going through, and we go through the, the grieving and the loss, and we get anxious, and and we go through those emotions, and, and it's hard, and our hearts are heavy and very troubled. But I'm reminded of what we talked about on Sunday as Jesus is addressing his disciples for the very last time, and he is saying to them in that upper room as they are troubled in their hearts, they're confused. He's talking about going away, and you can't come, and, and there's ones that's going to betray me, and, and Peter, you're going to deny me, and all of you are going to be made to, to run away because of me this night, and I'm going away, and you can't come. And Jesus gives those words that don't be troubled in your heart. You believe in God, believe also in me. And in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go and prepare a place for you to receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. 
And he says, you know the way. And they asked him, what is the way? And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And then Philip is asking, well, show us the Father. We'll be comforted by that. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know that the heart of God, then look at me, Philip. What are you, how can you say, show us the Father? I've been with you this whole time. The Father and I are one. And my prayer is that as we get to know him, is that we know his goodness and his faithfulness and that we're comforted by that. And not only are we going to be ones that as we go through the trials and the fiery trials and, and the losses, that we know that God wants to work, to do a refining work, to grow our faith, to help us come to that point and not only trusting in him, but resting in him. And I think that's the hard part for us, isn't it? To just rest in the Lord and rest in his love and what he's doing in our lives knowing that he is working for good, to stand on his promises, but not only learning those lessons of faith, to grow in faith and maturity in the Lord, but then to be able to be used to be able to bring comfort to others. Because here, these guys obviously had never been through that kind of loss that Job had been through. I don't think anybody has. When you think of of what Job has gone through, and people we know have gone through tremendous loss and, and loss of family and loved ones and, and it seems like they've lost everything. But these guys haven't experienced that. But when you have experienced difficulties and you're going to have more sympathy towards that person who's hurting, that has been through something similar to what you have been through. The losses that you experienced, the heartaches that, that you've experienced, the difficult circumstances that they find themselves in, you say, I was in a similar situation, and you're going to show more sympathy, and you're going to be able to minister to them and touch their hearts to a greater degree. A good first to remember was, remember last week when we were in um, Thanksgiving Eve, First Thessalonians chapter 5, and Paul here is writing to a very young church. They're only a few months old in the Lord. And he's writing to them, this church that was being persecuted, going through hard times, it was very difficult for them. And he says to them, as he writes, finishing up that first epistle, that you are to rejoice always. Even though you're going through hard times, rejoice always and pray without ceasing. And, and in everything, give thanks. Because this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. But before he says that, he's encouraging them and he says, what you're to do is you're to comfort the faint-hearted and uphold the weak. You know how it is that you're going to be able to strengthen somebody? You strengthen somebody by bringing comfort to them. The two go together. You comfort them, that's when they're going to be strengthened. When you give them God's comfort and God's wisdom, then you're going to be able to, to comfort the faint-hearted and uphold the weak. And when a brother or sister is really weak, or whoever it might be, that you have opportunity to minister to, and I'm emphasizing this is because this time of year, at the Christmas season, as we get you know, closer to Christmas, as we end the year, we'll be with friends. You'll be with coworkers. You'll be with families. And I think that most of you, if not all of you, are going to be with somebody who's really hurting. And you have opportunity to give words of comfort and hope to them, even to non-believers, to really be able to tell them about the coming of Jesus. That's why we celebrate Christmas. 
You know, when Jesus came and was born in Bethlehem, it was a terrible, awful time. The people lived in fear. And all of a sudden, the light of the world comes, born that night. The bread of life, born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the city of bread. And Jesus came to give us hope, and you can give them that encouragement and hope because he is our hope. We are to encourage each other. Even if, if those who are not believers, we can bring that encouragement to them. And you might see them and want to shake your head at them and say, tis, 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 how can you be this way? And you might be able to look at them and see and know about the ugliness of their life and the darkness of their life, but we need to see them as Jesus sees them, and that is he wants to save them. And we have opportunity to be able to share the love of Jesus Christ and bring truth to them and comfort to them. And the only hope that there is and that is the Savior of the world who came to this world to die for them. So we want to encourage. We don't want to just crush people. We want to comfort people. We don't want to break them and hit them with words that push them away from God. It's okay if they end up being convicted by the things that you say to them because conviction is to draw them to the Lord. You see, it's condemnation that will push them away from the Lord. There's a big difference. So here, these guys are condemning Job, and, and he is just crushed by the things that they are saying. In verse 6, though I speak, my grief is not uh, relieved. And if I remain silent, how am I eased? In verse 7, but now he has worn me out, and you have made desolate all my company. You have shriveled me up, and it is a witness against me. My leanness rises up against me and bears witness to my face. He tears me in his wrath and hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek. They gather together against me. Verse 11, God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he has shattered me. He also has taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up for his target. His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. Here, Job, he's again emotional. He's just expressing how his heart feels and, and, and what he's struggling with. I'm wasting away to nothing, and, and you're still coming at me. And God is against me. He has stripped everything from me. When we know that God's word says otherwise, here he, he, he's saying that he must hate me. He gnashes his teeth and, you know, and... He strikes me, and God has delivered me to the ungodly. So all these things that he's feeling. But we want to be reminded of what Paul the Apostle, what he would write in the book of Romans in chapter 8. And again, we touched on this just briefly last week when we ended Sunday service, but God is for us. And, and Paul writes, then, who, then shall we say these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Chapter 8 of Romans, verse 31. And then reading verse 30, 
32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And the implication is that he will freely give us all good things. And so he's given us the very best, his son. And Jesus is talking about love in that upper room discourse that we'll continue to see. And Jesus proves his love by going to the cross. The Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And we know the love of God was demonstrated to us, as Paul writes in the book of Romans, while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? So we know that he's given us the very best already, his Son, who was delivered up for us all, shall he not also freely give us all things? In other words, things that are good for you and for me. And if he doesn't give us something, then it's not good for us in eternity's perspective. All right? And we can trust in that. But here Job thinks that, that Lord, you're stripping me from everything. But it's interesting here. I want us to look at this. It kind of hit me when I was reading this, um, you know, this, this morning and looking at this again. But remember that the implication that these guys are giving Job is that God judges the wicked. So you're going through all this, Job. So you must have done something really bad and your children did something bad, they sinned, you sinned, so that's why this punishment is coming upon you, Job. But Job has been responding to them and saying, well, even the wicked prosper, at least in this life. And we know that there are those who are dishonest, who don't love the Lord, who are against God. It seems like in this life that they do prosper, but they're not truly getting away with it. That is, the end of their way will be destruction if they don't repent and turn to Jesus Christ. But Job has been saying that. But look at this as you read that he, he um, gnashes at me with his teeth and, and goes on. They gape at me with their mouth. They strike me reproachfully on the cheek and they gather together against me. God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. They shattered me. They also taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces, set me up for a target. They pierce my heart, and he pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with wound upon wound. Who does that remind you of? It does, doesn't Jesus? And the one who lived a perfect life, and the one who is sinless, the one that only one has ever lived that is truly righteous, one and he suffered for you because he loves you, because of his love for you. And I pray that you wouldn't forget that, I wouldn't forget that, and that as we continue to walk with him, that we would walk in that truth in a deeper, uh, more powerful way than ever before, that it would touch our hearts. Sometimes we get away from those basic truths, that the Lord does truly love me, and know that he loves you now, and that you can trust him with your life. So Job is struggling with all this. In verse 15, I have sewn sackcloth over my skin and laid my head in the dust. And my face is flushed from weeping. Now my eyelids is a shadow of death. You know, it's interesting that I'm sure that perhaps some of you can say that I know what it, it feels like to have a face that is flushed from weeping. That perhaps you've gone through loss or such difficulty in your life that you cried and you cried and you weep from the deepest depth of your heart that you didn't even know was there 
and your, your face was flush, and, you, and your cheeks and eyes were swollen because of that. And I want you to know that our Lord, it says in Isaiah, that he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he's the only one that truly understands your grief and your sorrows. And it is a, a bruised reed that he doesn't break, a smoking flax that he doesn't quench. But desiring to bring that comfort, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, a man who needed God's comfort in his life to a great degree because of the difficulties that he'd been through, that Paul begins that letter by saying that God is the one that brings comfort in all of our tribulations, the only true comfort that is there for us. Yes, we can bring comfort to others, but it is the Lord that ultimately brings the comfort of God to you as you remember that he's a man of sorrows unacquainted with grief and he is with you and he knows exactly what you're going through. And so verse 17, although no violence is in my hands and my prayer is pure, uh, O earth, do not cover my blood and let uh, my cry have no resting place. Surely even now my witness is in heaven and my evidence is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. For when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. So he wants to be vindicated by God, to talk with God. And in verse 21, there's no one to plead with. Job recognizes that what he needs is an advocate. And we have an advocate, don't we? Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's our advocate. He's our intercession, intercessor. In chapter 17, Job continues, My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Are not mockers with me? And does not my eye dwell on their provocation? His spirit is broken because of the affliction he's been through, but also because of the mockers that are with him and have been speaking to him. And I just want to reiterate once again that it is important what we say when we minister to others. We don't want to break somebody's spirit. And Job feels like that, that God doesn't even care, and he feels like nobody else even cares. And verse 3, Now put down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is he who will shake hands with me? For you have hidden their heart from understanding. Therefore, you will not exalt them. He who speaks flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children, will fail. So Job wants peace between him and heaven. He feels like his friends are more like an enemy who delivers a friend up as prey to the enemy. Here's something that I know that I can struggle with, and perhaps uh, you can as well. Whenever we feel like that there's somebody who's really hurt us, or is coming against us, or being a problem to us, that what can happen is we get focused on that individual or that group of individuals so much that it really begins to rob us of our strength and our joy and our peace and begins to rob us of our faith. Because we're so focused on the circumstance or we're focused on that individual. The children of Israel, Exodus chapter 14, you know the story. They're backed up against the Red Sea, mountain ranges on both sides. All of a sudden, the Egyptian chariots are coming at them. They see the dust. And it says that they lifted their eyes and they saw Pharaoh's chariots coming at them. And they cried out to Moses, Moses, what are we going to do? We're going to die out here in the wilderness. And Moses would say, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Don't be afraid. For after this day, you won't see the Pharaoh's 
you know, chariots any longer. For God is your salvation. You see, they needed to lift their eyes a little bit higher to the Lord. And understandably, when we have the world barreling down on top of us, when it seems like Pharaoh's coming against us, or people do that, we can get so focused on the individual. I know that I can do that, and I get anxious, and I begin to lose sleep, and, and I begin to get down and discouraged. And I'm reminded constantly that I need to lift my eyes a little bit higher and get my eyes on the Lord. Not to magnify the problem, but to magnify the Lord. Not to focus on individuals, but focus on the Lord. And that's hard to do, isn't it? But that's what Job is doing right now in his grief and in his sorrow. He's really focused on these guys. You guys are really coming against me. Uh, uh, he has made me, verse 6, a byword of the people, and I have become one in whose face men spit. My eye has also grown dim because of sorrow, and all my members are like shadows. Upright men are astonished at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the hypocrite. Yet the righteous will hold to his way, and he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. Stronger. So Job speaks about how he's been looked upon by others with disgust. I just wonder, as this discussion's going on, the longer it goes, that others are beginning to gather. And he kind of gives indication that there are others that have gathered, and they're kind of agreeing with the three friends. And I can just picture them. They won't look at Job, he says. They won't shake my hand. And, and they're there when Sophar speaks, or Bildad, or Eliphaz, and they're going, mm-hmm, that's right. And he's saying that, here these guys, they, they, they would, you know, who will shake my hand? You've hidden their heart from understanding, as he says to them. I have become one in whose face men spit. That's the, the greatest insult, isn't it? If somebody spit in your face, they spit in Jesus' face as he went through the sufferings for sinful humanity. But it's the greatest insult that you can do to a person. And here he says, my eyes have grown dim because of sorrow. I've, I've grieved. I've, my eyes are swollen. I can't see because of the crying. But he goes on and he says, you know, as these guys are concluding with Job's you know, three friends that he's a great sinner. But verse 9 in all of this, in the depth of his despair, all of a sudden, what amazes me about Job is he shows faith and, and a little bit of hope. He says, the righteous will hold his way. And he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. It's the Lord that will make you and I stronger and stronger. I'm reminded so much of many of the Psalms of David, particularly as he writes about early in his life when he was being persecuted by Saul. But all through David's life, he would be persecuted by enemies. And, and David gets his focus on those people, and he is grieving, and he talks about how his bone aches and how his enemies have surrounded him, and, and they're you know, out to get him and, and how they want to bring death to him. And David is speaking about that. He, he speaks about the sorrow that came to him. He talks about how his pillow has been soaked from his tears at night. And David is going through all this grief and sorrow and expressing it. But then what I love about the Psalms of David, then he begins to get focused on the Lord. And he says, but the Lord is my deliverer. And the Lord sees me. And he has lifted me out of this horrible pit. 
And he's my strong tower, and I will be kept under the shadow of his wings. David begins to get his eyes off his enemies, and he says, I cry out to the Lord and get his eyes on the Lord, and then he's rejoicing in the Lord. And it's a good lesson for us, isn't it? Hey, I need to get my eyes on the Lord. He's my defender. He is my strength. He's my strong tower. He's my protector. He's everything that I need. But it's real important that we don't let other people determine how it is that we react in situations in that we're going to react with bitterness or anger or I'm going to act in vengeance because the Lord says, vengeance is my, saith the Lord. And why does he say that? He says that because vengeance belongs to him, but also what he's saying in that is don't you mess with it because you can't handle it. You can't handle it. A lesson that is very, very hard to learn is when you have been hurt, is to forgive. You know, one of the things that I've come to realize, and I've known this, but really being worked out in my life more and more is the older I get or the more experience I have with, with perhaps difficulty with those who perhaps will hurt me or whatever it may be, is forgiveness is not an option. It's a command. And the only way to do that is to get my eyes on the Lord and ask Him to do that supernatural work in my life. And Lord, for me to have clean hands, I can't react to this situation out of just anger or bitterness towards somebody or whatever it might be. But Lord, I know that if I have clean hands and a clean heart, that you're going to make me stronger and stronger. And he will with you. It was David that he would say concerning Saul, Saul who came against David for no reason, such, such injustice. David had to run from Saul for years, even though David had been anointed the new king of Israel. He was being pursued by Saul. He would lose those years with his family. Matter of fact, we know that 1 Samuel tells us that David, that his family was sent away, and it's believed that it was sent away to Moab, and also we don't know for sure, but it, it is believed that perhaps that it would be those in Moab that ended up killing some of David's family. And you start kind of putting the pieces together and David would, you know, go against Moab. But David lost those years with his family, lost the prime of his years, you know, and being pursued. And he would say, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. And the Lord did such a work in him that you see in those beautiful Psalms that we have, that he ended up being the greatest king that Israel ever had. So here, Job, as he's praying for relief, talking about those who have come against him, verse 10 of chapter 17, but please come back again, all of you, for I shall not find one wise man among you. My days are past. My purposes are broken off. Even the thoughts of my heart, they change the night into day. The light is near, they say, in the face of darkness. If I wait for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in the darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, you are my mother and my sister, where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? 
So then, you know, he becomes a little bit sarcastic as he ends his response. He says, you can come back and speak, but there's no wisdom. And then he just kind of falls back into this sense of hopelessness. You know, where is the hope? There is no hope. And to remind you again of that verse in Jeremiah, that the Lord knows you. I know my thoughts toward you, says the Lord. They're thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. He is our future and he is our hope. But chapter 18, now we see that Bildad, he speaks and he says in verse 2, how long till you put an end to words, gain understanding, and afterwards we will speak. And why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or shall the rock be removed from its place? So Bill, Dad the Brutal, he speaks again. And he continues to just hurl insults at, at Job. He wants Job to just shut up and to listen to him. You ever met somebody or had somebody, they, they you know, you need to shut up and just listen to me. Now, I know there are times where you need to be quiet, you need to listen to me. But that attitude we don't want to have of, I'm right, you have no insight, when we're really being insensitive to somebody. And that's what Bildad is doing. He's going to begin to blast away at Job. So you need to listen to me, you need to keep quiet. You know, you think that the earth has forsaken you, you think you're so special, uh, in verse 4, that, that God is going to change things for you, Job. You can be angry, but you're a sinner and you need to repent. That's the implication that he's given. We continue in verse 5, the light of the wicked and indeed goes out. So he's going to describe here the, the miserable life, Bildad, of the wicked. And he's implying that this applies to you, Job. And, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and the lamp beside him is put out. The steps of, of his strength are shortened, and his own counsel cast him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks into a snare. The net takes him by the heel, and a snare lays hold of him. A, a noose is hidden for him on the ground, and a trap for him in the road. Verse 11, terrors frighten him on every side and drive him to his feet. His strength is starved and destruction is ready at his side. It devours patches of his skin. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. He is uprooted from the shelter of his tent and they prayed him before the king of terrors. And they dwell in his tents who are none of his and brimstone is scattered on his dwellings. So as he's describing the, 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 the terrible life of, of the wicked, You've brought this devastation upon yourself, Job. Verse 16, his roots are dried out below. His branch withers above. The memory of, his, of him perishes from the earth, and he has no name among the renowned. He has driven from light into darkness and has chased out of the world. He has neither son nor posterity among his people, nor any remaining in his dwellings. Verse 20, those in the west are astonished at his day, and those in the east are frightened. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him who does not know God. The conclusion of Bildad is that you don't even know God. I don't think that you can get any harsher or more hurtful than that. And one of the things that we will see at the end of this book is that God is going to not be saying that Job was wicked. 
But he's going to be saying that Job was faithful. He hasn't cursed God. He still has faith. He's going to rebuke the three counselors. But my hope and prayer that I have for me, and I pray for you as well, is that, Lord, whatever I'm going through, whatever season or whatever difficulty or loss, that I still want to be faithful to you. I want to be faithful to you. And I want to trust in you. And Lord, though you slay me, thus I will trust in you, as Job says. Remarkable statements of faith. The Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I still want to have that faith in him and trust in him. And I want to be faithful to him. But I know I can't do it in my own energy. None of us can. And it's just a dependency upon the Lord and the work that, Lord, do you want to do in my life and what you want to show me? Let's do chapter 19 very quickly, and then we'll be done tonight. Then Job answered, as he's going to answer Bildad, and said, how long will you torment my soul and break me in, in pieces with words? These ten times you have reproached me. You are not ashamed that you have wronged me, and if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. If indeed you exalt yourselves against me and plead my disgrace against me, know that then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. So Job has been hurt by what Bildad says, and our words can bring hurt or they can bring comfort, right? You know the saying. When we were kids, when a kid was you know, calling you names or something, you were told to say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, right? The problem with that saying is it's not true. Words do hurt. And they hurt very deeply. And James talks about that in James chapter 3. He says the tongue is like a fire, it defiles, and, and you, know, um, you know, it's full of deadly poison. With our tongue, we can bless God or we can curse man. And with the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. Uh, brethren, these things ought not to be so, is what James says. It's important, the words that we speak, that we're not bringing hurt, not bringing harm, but we're bringing help. And Job is expressing that you haven't tried to understand what I have been through. In verse 6, Job feels like an animal trapped. God has wronged me. It's very sad the way Job feels. Again, he understands the greatness of God, but he feels like God is, is against him. Verse 7, as we read, If I cry out concerning wrong, I am not heard. If I cry out aloud, there is no justice. He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness in my past. He has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. My hope, he has uprooted like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me and accounts me as one of his enemies. His troops come together and build up their road against me. They encamp all around my, my tent. He describes how God has not heard him. He feels like that there's no justice from God. He has beat me down. And I think that one of the saddest expressions that Job has given so far in this book is verse 11, he counts me as one of his enemies. I know that I've talked to Christians that still feel like when they come to faith in Jesus that somehow that they're still at war with God and an enemy of God, that God sees them in that way. Do you know that 
Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. You know what that word propitiation means. It's a word that means satisfaction. Yes, he has redeemed us. He's made atonement for us, for our sins. But he is also the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. And so it is Jesus, his death on the cross, that has met that righteous requirement that is needed for you and I to have forgiveness of sin and to come into right relationship with the Father. And as we come in faith, we are now his children. We can cry out, Abba, Father. We are not at war with God any longer. We're not at enmity against God. So don't think that God sees you as an enemy. He's not mad at you. He loves you. And if he chastens you, brings discipline to you, rejoice in that. Because he's doing it because you are his child and he loves you. And he loves you. And if you go through trials and losses and difficulties, he is with you. But you're not at war with the Lord. He doesn't see you as the enemy. You are his child. And Job, unfortunately, thinks that I must be an enemy of God. He sees me that way. We have peace with God. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And verse 13 has removed my brothers far from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed. My close friends, they've forgotten me. He feels alone. And I'm sure that a lot of us in the times where we go through difficulties, we can feel so alone, can't we? Even when we're around people. You just feel alone, and he does. And those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Even young children despise me. I rise and they speak against me. All my close friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bone cling to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. He, he feels like everyone has forsaken him. They refuse to listen to him. They don't care about me. I hope this is a place where you feel loved. And there are people here that care about you. In verse 21, have pity on me, have pity on me, you, uh, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and not satisfied with my flesh? Have pity on me. Don't, you know, persecute me as he feels like God is doing. So Job is really at a low point here. And, and then in verse 23, oh, that my words were written, oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. Job, your words are inscribed in a book. <laughs> the Bible for all eternity. In verse 24, they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead. Verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. If you should say, how shall we persecute him since the root of the matter is found in me? Be afraid of the sword for yourselves, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a 
judgment again. Here we see that he gives this just incredible statement of faith in this real low point that he's at. And he says, my Redeemer lives. A Redeemer is one who, who defends and vindicates, one who is unjustly wrong, defender of the oppressed, an advocate of one unjustly accused. I know that my Redeemer lives, and I will see God. And he's expressing some comfort and some hope in that statement that he makes. And I will see him. I will see him. And we will see our God. And our Redeemer lives. He lives. And he is with you. And as we come to the communion table here tonight, which we're going to do right now, that as you hold the elements in your hand, and then we'll partake of it together, but as you'll come up and, and take the elements, and as you go back to your chair, just continue to, to worship and know that your Redeemer lives because Jesus Christ, we know that our Redeemer, that He went to the cross. He went through the sufferings, allowing His body to be broken and His blood shed. And he ended up dying, but he lives because he rose from the grave. And we have hope, right? We have hope. This Christmas we have hope. And every day we have hope because our Redeemer lives. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for, even though we go through these tough chapters, we see a man that is hurting. Lord, we can learn and we can be comforted knowing that our Redeemer lives. And, Lord, that we can trust in you and that we are not at war with you. But even as we come to the communion table tonight and we hold the elements, we know that we belong to you. We've entered into this new covenant, a covenant of you going and allowing her body to be broken for forgiveness of sin. And, and Lord, knowing that your blood was shed for forgiveness of sin. So I pray that you would bring comfort to anyone here tonight that really needs it. That our hope and your hope is in him, your redeemer. Father, I pray that this would be a blessed time to get our focus off whatever is heavy on our heart and now get it on you. And knowing what you have done for us. So Lord, bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have the two tables here open. You can come up and get to communion elements and go back to your chair and be able to just, it's just a time of worship and reflecting on the Lord.